Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the podcast. We are the Ambassadors at Large. My name is Joe Genie, based in Washington, D.C. Great to have you with us. This is a podcast about international affairs. So on our last episode, we were talking about immigration and politics here in the United States and how uh, changing demographics in the United States were changing the electoral makeup and changing the nature of our politics. One of the things I said was that as the United States has this wholesale demographic makeover where it becomes a majority-minority nation, uh, I said, I don't want to overstate the case, but civil wars have happened over this sort of thing. So today we're going to talk about a country where that basically actually happened. Uh, We're going to talk about Cote d'Ivoire, and uh, to help uh, do this, I'm delighted to introduce two friends of mine who are actually living and working in Cote d'Ivoire right now. Uh, Nora Sturm and Laura Sennett are uh, are based in Abidjan, which is the, not the administrative capital, but the sort of major city in Cote d'Ivoire on the coast. And uh, they are both joining uh, me on the call. Uh, Nora works for uh, UNHCR, Laura for the African Development Bank. Nora and Laura, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, just uh, maybe a little bit of background to uh, uh, about Cote d'Ivoire to sort of sort of how we got to this this important point because you both witnessed a, a fairly important moment in in Cote d'Ivoire's history and this is a particularly interesting time in the country's history. So just a little bit of, of background here. Cote d'Ivoire just had a presidential election on October 25th. The previous two Ivorian elections in this millennium were almost immediately followed by civil wars. So uh, this was a really really big deal uh and so we'll get we'll get to basically the sort of backdrop of it but uh but first of all how um we, we have an incumbent his name is Alassane Watara this was his first time running for re-election uh how did he do he won swimmingly uh I believe the official reports say that he got something like 80 percent of the votes 84 percent um but with a pretty low voter turnout I think about 52 percent of the Registered voters actually went out and voted. So, yeah. but he, yeah, he beat his opponents handily. Um, as you said, being the incumbent, he had obviously just sort of a natural advantage there, like any incumbent would. But uh, at the end of the day, it was almost like he was the only candidate, which is not true. There were ten to fifteen other candidates who were in the running. I believe there were thirteen actually. Eight. eight. Oh, it went down to eight? At the end. Um, people kept dropping out, and the opposition kept dropping out, and they called for a boycott, and in the end, that did not happen. But as Nora rightly said, the turnout was low, but people really weren't that surprised by that because the feeling was everybody knew that Watara would win. Generally, when, uh, when a, uh, a candidate wins upwards of 80% of the vote, I get a little skeptical. But my understanding is that it's pretty free and fair. It's just that a lot of people who opposed Watara didn't bother to vote because the guy they probably would have voted for is in The Hague. I think that's part of it, Joe. I would also probably add to that, just according to conversations that I had with you know colleagues or Ivorian friends, is that a lot of them really did not have an appetite for um, any potential violence that could have happened. I think a lot of friends were reluctant to vote just out of sort of fear that things might get out of control. But, but you're right. I think a lot of them also were just not that you know, enthusiastic about the opposition field. Just a little bit of background to sort of fill out how we got to this point in Ivorian, Ivorian history. If, if I could sort of start, I feel like this, I mean, you could you could always go back and fur, further back, but I feel like the, the story as 
why the politics have gotten so fraught uh, in the last few election cycles, you sort of have to go back, I'd say, to the 1970s. And in the 1970s, Cote d'Ivoire was... And again, please correct me if, if, I, if I'm wrong on anything. I'm really fascinated by the country, but I've also not been within 2,000 miles of it. So um, uh, in the 1970s, Cote d'Ivoire was like the place to be in West Africa. The economy was booming. And although the, the name of the country translates in English to Ivory Coast, what it should be is, is Cote de Chocolat. It's the, it's the cocoa bread basket of the world, basically. So the price of cocoa was high, the output was high. Uh, there was just no better place to be in West Africa. The economy was booming. And it was so good that loads of people, many of them from surrounding countries, particularly though not exclusively from Burkina Faso to the north, started emigrating into northern Cote d'Ivoire to work in the cocoa fields. And, and, and Abidjan, the, where, where you are, is sort of really swanky uh, capital. It was sort of like kind of like a cross between Paris and Miami. And, and it, Cote d'Ivoire was just the hottest place to be. So people came in and they came in in such numbers that they actually started to tip the the demographic makeup of the country. And then the commodity markets collapsed. So all of a sudden you had a weaker economy and you had a lot, large-scale migration. You had the kind of anti-immigrant backlash. And reductively, it seems like you've got basically the South which considers themselves to be real Ivorian and and is comprised of a you know a number of different ethnic groups and uh, is mostly Christian and then the North which also considers themselves to be I- Ivorian but the the South kind of dismisses them as like a bunch of Burkinabis who just showed up uh, and, and want to vote now uh, and and they're mostly Muslim and so you have this sort of North South split and when the when the the last few election cycles. Basically, what's happened is either the, the the candidate from the north has been barred from running, or he's run and won, and the the, the southerners have refused to accept it. So Alassane Ouattara, the the guy who's the incumbent now, he was going to run in two thousand and one, and was barred from doing so by an election law saying, "Oh, if one of your parents is not Ivorian and one of his parents is, I think his father is 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 Burkinabe, um, then you're not eligible." So he the the law was just deliberately designed to disqualify him from running. So a- after that election, there was a large scale, you know, people were people considered it illegitimate and this, this ruinous civil war broke out. And there, eventually there was a peace deal in 2006, 2007, partially brokered after the, the national football team qualified for the World Cup, <laughs> which we can talk about in a little bit. And, and that that basically set the stage for the, the 2010 elections where it was like, okay, we're going to build up institutions. The UN peacekeeping force is going to come in and help uh, keep the peace. The UN will certify the elections and we're just going to accept whatever the results are. And the results were that Alassane Ouattara won. Uh, his opponent, Laurent Bogbo, who was the incumbent president, refused to accept that Ouattara had won. And a war broke out again, but this time the UN you know, decisively certified that Watara was the winner, that the election was free and fair. The French intervened. Bagbo was basically disarmed and sent to The Hague. Watara was installed as president, and he's been president ever since. And that leads us to this next point. And that's one of the reasons why uh, people in, a lot of people in the South were kind of, A, leery, like you say, leery to vote because there's been this history of violence, but also kind of like, well, the guy we were going to run is in The Hague. Half the opposition wants to boycott anyway. And so a lot of people just were not enthusiastic to show up. Uh, does that basically sort of sum up how we got here? Yeah, I would say that's pretty good, Joe. A plus for me. 
Um, <laughs> I, I, I read the Wikipedia page. No, I um, <laughs> um, no. So, um, so what's interesting is, so you're both based in Abidjan. Abidjan's in the south. Um, now, I guess my first question is because you know because I'm not there, and different sort of different cultures handle things different ways. Like when you go around and you you meet people, you go to parties, you you know you go out for a drink, you you meet people in the course of your daily affairs. Um, do people talk about politics? Do they do they not want to talk about politics? Like, is this something that's that's a, a constant running theme, or is it or is it something that people are just trying to look past and, and ignore? I think people do talk about it. Um, as Nora pointed out, people are tired of fighting and tired of war and didn't want more of that. And so people are careful not to say anything that would be very, um, that would sort of ignite any sort of fire. They don't say things that are super controversial. And I think it's um, because there's not an appetite to sort of stir up that, those sorts of problems anymore. But people talk about it because it is an interesting and relevant part of their history. Again, you know, the crisis was in 2011. That was like yesterday. This is not something that happened a long time ago. It's something that people lived through. Our colleagues, our friends, our neighbors were here. They were. We weren't here at the time, but people were here, and it was real and um, very frightening. I think incredibly dangerous. Uh, about three thousand people died, I believe, during the post-electoral violence. So, it's people definitely remember that, and so it does. Yeah, yeah. It does come up. Bagbo's people were using heavy weapons out of their compound in like major urban centers. I can't remember if he was based in Yamasuka or in Abidjan, but 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 uh, I remember this, and that was that was the thing that that the French did with Operation Licorne uh, was they basically intervened and disarmed Bagbo's heavy weapons, and then uh, and after that he was taken away and sent to the Hague. But that was like that that's. You know, you can't take, yeah, it's like you can't take for granted just like the experience of seeing just like urban warfare between government and rebel and, you know, and international forces uh, within the living political memory and, and even the recent history of, of a country. Um, I, lo- I love, meanwhile, the, the, I just have mentioned the, the 2006 thing with, the, with the, the World Cup team. Basically, the war had been ra- raging and then the, the, World Cup team, you know, the, the the elephants, the, the the Ivorian national team, qualified for the World Cup, and basically a truce was declared. And they even had a, a I think a World Cup qualifier in the rebel held capital to kind of unify the country, and and that kind of paved the way for the 2007 peace deal. The, you know the the arrival of the UN peacekeeping force and a lot of the work that that both of you are now involved in. So like that that World Cup team is really one of the one of the great sporting moments in, in history, I feel. Is, is Didier Drogba, like, worshipped <laughs> in Cote d'Ivoire? <laughs> is, like is he, like, the national hero? I don't know. Like, I, when, I was in, when I was in the Philippines, it was, like, it was the, the game was, like, how far can you drive without seeing a Manny Pacquiao poster? He, he's, like, you know, the, the sports symbol of the nation. Do, do, it seems like the, the, the soccer team is really is really like a big deal as far as the, the unifying the national identity of Cote d'Ivoire. I think you're right, Joe. Um, there's this one image or this one sort of story about um, Drogba that he like got down on his knees during a match or something. and was like, guys, please like stop fighting. We have to be at peace. Um, so at least a few years ago, he was definitely, I think, sort of lionized. Um, people now, I think, find him a little bit, I don't know, from a more soft, like just from a soccer perspective, I think he's 
maybe a little bit in the shadows of like Yaya Touré and those guys. But yeah, like the sort of next generation who are a little bit younger than uh, Drogba. But the Elephants also won the African Cup of Nations this year, which was, I believe, in February. And it was really exciting to be here for that. The games were being held in Equatorial Guinea, but, uh, you know, everybody was watching the games. You know, tra- no one was out in the streets. Everyone was in front of a TV somewhere. They organized a bunch of, like, big viewings, like, at the university and stuff, and you'd have thousands of people. Yeah. All together. And then, the, yeah, the day after they won, the president declared the next day a national holiday. So it was, <laughs> it was a really fun thing to get to experience, to have that sort of camaraderie and warmth and excitement between people. Totally. And it wasn't at all, like, there was no hostility in the air. You know, it didn't get out of control. People were just stoked to have won. Yeah. I think you're right when you talk about a unifying factor. That's one of the cool things about, about sport is, like, it's, it's almost, there's a certain degree of meritocracy to it. It's like, if you could, if you could play and you can help the team win, then, then you're part of the team. And I, I don't know. I feel like like sport has a great lesson for life in that way. Um, so also, I feel like uh, that that helps. You know, it's got to be good for your presidential campaign when you're when the national team wins the Africa Cup of Nations. Definitely. I think um, didn't he give money to all the players after and was he bought them all houses and right. they got prize money as yeah. well. No. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, that's that's priceless. So uh, both of you are actually working on really interesting because this is one of the things the the Ivorian. I mean, it's been kind of a long. Uh, decline for for Cote d'Ivoire from the the heyday of the seventies, and it hit its nadir during the civil war in two thousand one two to through two thousand six, and, and basically what's been going on since then is basically been trying to sort of rebuild a country, and so both of you are working on different aspects on that. Um, so maybe L- Laura, maybe we could start with you. Your work with the African Development Bank, which is headquartered in Abidjan, I, I believe. It is. Um, so, so, I mean, part of this is basically how do you build up, I mean, like when you're trying to finance, the, when you're trying to, to do work in, in Cote d'Ivoire, how do you, I mean, what, what is your basic, what is your goal in a country where historically so much of, of the economy has been based on a, on a single commodity that is, you know, uh, at the mercy of, of up and down world markets and prices? Um, well, to be honest with you, in my job, I actually don't work directly on Cote d'Ivoire. Um, I'm in the strategy and operational policy department at the bank, and we're in charge of sort of cross-cutting multi-sector um, initiatives that otherwise wouldn't be taken up by one specific department. And then looking at sort of the overall objectives for the bank, there's a 10-year strategy, and making sure that all the different projects and programs that are going on throughout the bank are in line with the strategic objectives and priorities that are outlaid both by the president of the bank and in the 10-year strategy document. Joe, she's basically the president's special advisor. That's not true at all. She like, um, meets them all the time. They're that's not true. Best friends. Um, but the country, so I arrived in September of 2014, so I've been here just over a year, and the country in Abidjan, at least, has really developed massively in the past year alone. Uh, A lot of its infrastructure projects, looking at roads, they've opened a new bridge, which has really changed things because otherwise Abidjan sits on a lagoon that you need these bridges to get back and forth between different parts of the city. And 
um, you can just see that things are happening, that money is being spent for development to, you know, develop the country. There has been some discussion. I've heard that it's not really been done equally throughout the country, that it's very much focused in Abidjan, uh, which, as you said, is like the economic capital of the country. And that if you're in more rural areas or up north or whatever, they're not getting the same benefits. They're not receiving the same level of development. In, in a way, though, I feel like that's that's kind of a good sign because one of the things you always fear is when, when you're voting along kind of... When most people are voting along ethnic and regional lines, the fear of having a northerner win for the southerners is, oh, well, all of the state resources are just going to go to the northerners and we're not going to get government jobs and we're not going to get infrastructure investments and that kind of thing. So it's almost because Abidjan is most firmly in the south. Uh, although being the sort of economic hub of the, the country, I'm sure it's a magnet for everybody. Uh, it's kind of a nice sign that 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 the president is not playing favorites with his home home region, or at least not uh, you know uh, outrageously so. Yeah, I would say. I mean, that's that's true, Joe. But it doesn't take away from the fact I think that the development that Laura's talking about really is highly concentrated. Um, and so the minute you leave Abidjan. Um, or even Yamoussoukro, like, the roads become very, very poor. Um, lots of villages are not electrified, even within sort of the perimeter of the city. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty stark contrast. But you're right. I guess you could say that at least he didn't relocate the government to his, mm-hmm. to his city. And no, no, that's... That- that's a pattern that I see in a lot of developing countries. I mean, from frontier markets through through developing countries through even sort of you know like like the BRICS, you know, like just countries that are not in the OECD. You have this marked disparity between major urban centers and the development there and the kind of economic growth there and, and the rural areas. How much of this is inevitable, or and how much of it is sort of what outsiders are focused on versus? I mean. What do you think the causes of this are, and is there a way to, to to get around it and make sure that the folks in the rural areas are getting the same kind of investment? Oh man! Um, Sorry, the, the, you could just talk for the next twenty minutes or so. I'm going to go get a scotch. And, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. So there's like 22 million people in Cote d'Ivoire, I think, and four and a half live in Abidjan. So. Maybe there's more people. You need to devote some more of the resources here. This is what people are seeing, as you're saying. This is where people are coming into the country, where they come. And I might add to that that a lot of this is sort of foreign direct investment, and that's pretty targeted to certain places. I mean, right now Morocco is um, really focusing on on development projects, but they're pretty much exclusively based here. So, you know, of course, the government's not about to say, no, we won't accept this, but... You know, it's fairly earmarked. But does a rising tide lift all boats? Like if you if you have a, a dynamic hub in Abidjan and that's producing tax revenue and economic growth and it's a major trading port and so stuff, you know, if, if the infrastructure improves, then, then more of, of Cote d'Ivoire's goods are getting out into the international markets and vice versa. Um, do, does it, I mean, it seems like, like it's not necessarily the worst thing in the world to invest in your major, your major urban center. No, of course. The question is, is that at the expense of something else? I mean, everything that it's been great in terms of like having an extra bridge open, it sounds silly, but it has absolutely changed the traffic patterns in the city. 
and they built sort of like a new highway system and have been extending it over the past year. And again, the fact that it takes 20 minutes to get to the office instead of two and a half hours, and literally was that sort of a change for some people, that makes a huge difference in your daily life. And there is a trickle-down effect. And I think you know, the regions are starting to, to benefit a little bit from, from the development of the country. It's just taking a little bit longer, I think, than some might like. But that's, that's pretty inevitable. Mm-hmm. You mentioned also, like, um, for example, that maybe more people here and they're paying taxes and that eventually that will get spread out. And at the bank, we talk a lot about domestic resource mobilization with the idea that uh, overseas development assistance will no longer be enough to fill the financing gaps that's necessary to develop countries around the world and so instead you need to get how are you going to mobilize extra funds then to pay for the development projects that need to take place and one of the things is saying you want to create like a larger tax base you want to get more people in the um, formal economy paying taxes you want to increase the size of your private sector meaning you have more businesses that are registered again paying into the system but also you have more people then earning and you're growing the economic power of that economy um, it's not an easy thing, particularly in a country like Cote d'Ivoire, where the informal economy is still incredibly strong. And, a hu- you know, I don't know what the percentages are, the, um, the numbers are for Cote d'Ivoire, but um, there's, a, I think, um, maybe about 25% of people work in the formal sector, and then the rest is informal. So you can imagine there's a lot of people that aren't necessarily paying into the system and... Um, you know, they might be scraping by. It's not like they're getting off on a great deal. It's not necessarily, you know, being in the formal sector has advantages and disadvantages. But um, it'll be interesting to see in a country like Cote d'Ivoire, which I really think is developing massively quickly right now, how far does it go along that then you actually raise, though, the incomes and status of life of all the people or does it just get sort of bottlenecked into a certain group of people? Well, and then the next question is, does this continue across borders? I mean, that's kind of the story of Cote d'Ivoire is that Cote d'Ivoire's economic growth or decline has had consequences for its neighbors. Now you're working for the African Development Bank and like you say, you're doing large, you're, you're doing projects all over the region. And so how much of what you do is sort of predicated on nation-by-nation nation plans and how much of it is, is taking into account people traveling across borders, working in informal economies? Like, you know, how, how much do you view each each country? Because a lot of West African countries, Cote d'Ivoire kind of stands on its own, but a lot of its neighbors are pretty little. And, uh, and uh how much do you, when you're planning, do you sort of look at kind of cross-regional solutions versus targeted, like we're going to focus on, you know, Sierra Leone or, or, or Togo or something? The bank um, does a little bit of both. There are country teams and there are regional teams. A lot of the projects, because they give out um, large-scale loans to governments, and so those then are by government, so it's per country, and the countries have different um, lending criteria depending on the economic health of that particular country. So it really is country to country. Um, but I think Nora's work actually deals more with borders and cross-border issues, and look, working with refugees sure. and migration migrants. And yeah, I guess my work, Joe, doesn't talk so much, doesn't uh, focus so much on economic development, though. Um, 
that, that, and that's that's where that's the natural next step here is basically looking at at Cote d'Ivoire. One of the biggest questions that has bedeviled this country for a long time is who is Ivorian, and uh, Burkinabe's account for was something like twenty six percent of the country now, and a lot of them were granted citizenship under previous regimes, not all of them democratically elected, and that I, I know that's caused like a lot of resentment in, in the south, but you've also got a, a bunch of neighbors for, of Cote d'Ivoire that are kind of themselves unstable, and people have often fled across borders. Uh, you've had military coups and, and wars in most of of the countries in the region over the course of the last fifteen to twenty years. So when you're dealing with with refugees, how uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about what it's like to try and and figure out basically to try to resolve this question in a way that's satisfactory for everybody who is Ivorian sure so actually um, there are not that many refugees left in Cote d'Ivoire only about 2,000 um, at one point there was tens of thousands after the Liberian war but in 2012 um, most of those refugees actually lost their refugee status um, following what you call a cessation clause so now, now there's only about 2,000, a little bit less than 2,000. Um, most of them are still from Liberia. Those are the ones who are exempt from this clause. Um, but there's also Afghans, Syrians, um, Burundians, you know, Central African Republicans. Um, and they certainly, these people are not at all clamoring to become Ivorian. They're just sort of happy to be recognized as refugees and benefit from international protection in the country. Um, the more kind of you know national nationality issue, I guess is how you would put it, uh, relates more to what we call foreign migrants. So people who have been in the country for generations uh, since the country obtained independence in 1960, but really, really never received, never confirmed their their nationality either from their country of origin, which at the time was just like a French colony, you know, for the most part, uh, be it Burkina Faso or or Guinea. Um, but they also didn't confirm or acquire formally an Ivoirian citizenship, so they're kind of stuck in between the two. And that has contributed yeah, but, to tensions. Yeah. I, I mean, Alassane Ouattara is, is kind of a special case because he's literally descended from royalty, but but it's kind of it's kind of telling. I mean, the man was born in the country, lived in the country, uh, has has been a citizen of the country, and his political opponents were basically trying to tar him as, as a Burkinabe who wasn't Ivorian, and and it got to the point in, in 2001 when he was barred from running, where Blaise Campori, the then dictator of of Burkina Faso, actually had to say, "Look, the guy's not Burkina. He's the guy's not from Burkina Faso. He doesn't live here. He's not like he's not from here. He's not. He's he, he's one of you guys. Um, and, and that's true of a, a lot of these folks. Um, so is that? I mean, does UNHCR deal with that, or is that is that more of like a political affairs thing? It's it's it kind of crosses." It kind of crosses over multiple different sectors of what the UN does in the country. Yeah, no, UNHCR doesn't work on that um, on that specific issue at all. That's really quite political, and we kind of we we make a point of you know sort of staying staying far away from that. But what we do focus on more is the hundreds of thousands of people who who don't have a nationality um, in the country. That that is one of our priorities here. You said you said the bit about about the about the French West African history here. I mean, until about 1960, it made absolutely no difference whether you lived in, in Cote d'Ivoire or, or, or in, in Burkina Faso it's, as far as your, your citizenship and your ability to move because it was all just French West Africa. So, so basically for those hundreds of thousands of folks, what, do you, what, 
what's the what's the procedure? What are you doing on a daily basis to, to help resolve the issue? Um, so I guess the issue I might just the issue stems from the fact that um, you know under the first president of the country, a man named Felix Ufebwani, uh, people mostly from Burkina Faso migrated to um, to Cote d'Ivoire to work in the plantations because the country was the least populous but the most fertile. So it made sense for for them to to settle there. Um, but they kind of moved at a time where you know, they were neither Burkinabe or Ghanaian or whatever, but then when they arrived in Cote d'Ivoire, they also they just settled in, you know, in sort of rural areas and didn't think twice about registering their children's birth or registering their own identities and then kind of you know, lived for years and years without any sort of formal, um, formal existence. The problem with that is that you know, that status is passed on from generation to generation and um, kids can't go to school, they can't get access to medical care sometimes, uh, they get bribed when they try to travel to sell their goods, uh, even just within the country. Uh, and they're, you know, they're victims of human trafficking and abuse as a result of not having any formal identity. So what we try to do is um, help these people acquire citizenship, um, you know, be it Ivoirian or be it from another country, wherever country they can sort of legally prove that they have ties to. We help them do that. Um, so in Cote d'Ivoire, like, there's two major populations that are stateless or at risk of statelessness. It's those historical migrants that I was talking about. There's also a group of uh, people that we call foundlings, which are basically children who are born on um, Ivorian territory, but um, who can't identify who their parents were. They were just abandoned. Um, and Ivorian kind of nationality law uh, stipulates that you're Ivorian if at least one of your parents is Ivorian. But if you can't prove that, you don't have citizenship. But then, you know, what are you? You're stateless, basically. So those are the two populations that we're working on for the most part. To, to me, this this just seems like some of the most important work because, I mean, first of all, it, it really makes me grateful. One thing about the United States is that we have birthright citizenship and uh, it just, it, it, it means that everybody is a citizen of somewhere. And that's just a really powerful thing. Uh, the, the idea that, that in the 21st century, you would just have large groups of people that are, that are, that literally have no, no citizenship that are not a citizen of any place is, uh, is something that just it it boggles the mind that 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 can continue into into this era. So uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, you get you guys do good work there, basically. So um, yeah, no, it's, it's gratifying. Uh, We're very lucky to work in a country that is receptive to international um, presence, international you know operations. I think they're the country's keen to you know tackle these problems. It's just taking a little while. Okay, so. Uh, so the one final thing that I wanted to to ask you all about you, you both about is because uh, I'm sort of living vicariously through so many of my class. In fact, that's kind of why I started this podcast was that I realized my classmates and and friends from from Johns Hopkins, we all went to school together, uh, from my days at the United Nations, uh, from my time at Grinnell College when I was younger. Uh, have gone on to do really cool things all around the world, many of which are things that I wish I was doing, but I'm not. I'm doing what I'm doing instead. And so I created the podcast to kind of like, to A, to catch up with y'all, but like also to to find out just what it's like to be working in, in, in Cote d'Ivoire. So uh, if we could perhaps conclude, I mean, you, you both, 
you've, you've traveled the country and probably the region a bit, quite a bit, but you're both based in Abidjan. Um, you've both lived in a number of cities around the world. What is the thing that really sort of stands out about Abidjan? Like, uh, you know, uh, what, what makes it a distinct as a city? So many things. Um, I guess I would start off by saying the access, easy access to the beach. <laughs> um, good Ivorian food. There's this thing here called aloko, which is basically fried plantains. They're delicious. Um, which you kind of eat at outdoor restaurants called maki. You eat it with your hands. Good Ivorian beer is actually not that bad. Well, I mean, it's like a light pilsner and they all taste exactly the same. But Laura's a beer expert. I'm not. Um... I think it's really fun to live here. I think it's a really easy place to live. You can find basically anything you would ever want. There are some things that are expensive and you'd have to pay for a premium to get those special things. But, you know, if you're a little bit flexible, uh, you're willing to pay, you know, a little bit more for something that you do really, really want. But like, what are you thinking of more? Like Greek yogurt. That's always my example. (laughs) Greek yogurt's extremely expensive. Like, prohibitively expensive, so I just don't eat Greek yogurt here. Life goes on. Mm. But um, we could definitely go for a Starbucks. I think that would, that would be, be nice. a huge improvement in our lives. Just, you know, sometimes we need a good afternoon latte. <laughs> but uh, we're going to go for frozen yogurt tonight. Um, it recently opened, and it's kind of become a, a bi-weekly tradition. We probably go every, every two or three weeks. Sure. It's delicious. But there's... A lot to do here and a lot going on, whether you're going to a film festival or a gallery, art gallery opening, or I went and saw a 3D movie the other night. They show, are showing The Martian, and um, so... Good movie. It was a great movie. I liked it a lot. So it's, we stay busy. Yeah. No, it's... I, I, I DJ parties on the side. Reliable sources tell me that Abidjan and, and Dakar are the the um, wildest partying cities in West Africa. Yeah, you can... I think I got home at like 5 a.m. last night, I think. Um, I got home a little bit earlier than that. <laughs> Happy... Is, is Halloween a big deal out there? No. Among the expats, it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, nice. There were at least three different Halloween parties this weekend. Mm-hmm. Four, I think. I think... I feel like Halloween is going to be one of these things that conquers the world. You know, there's, there are certain sort of... You know, this this is American soft power in in action. We think Halloween is a big deal, and the rest of the world thought it was nuts. But now you see, like continental Europe and the UK are getting into it, and it you know it kind of it's kind of become like the Western carnival. And and if and there's you know every every television show in America has a Halloween special or like a Halloween episode, and it's only a matter of time before this seeps out, and the, the whole rest of the world dresses up in stupid costumes, and like like has Donald Trump hair and stuff. Like this is going to happen. I feel. No, it was a, a good time. There's definitely a strong party scene, lots of live music. Um, the going out like scene is really normally clubbing. Uh, but like, there's not bars. There's no like dive bar scene at all. Um, it's clubbing where you would order a bottle of alcohol for your table and drink ten dollar beers, which is kind of ridiculous. But and dance in front of mirrors. That's a big thing here. Yeah. <laughs> Good grief. Uh, does does the informal because we all, uh, uh, does the informal economy kind of? I, I remember from my Bologna days that it was sort of like 
there were there were official structures to get things done, but if you wanted to really get things done, you just whether it was housing or like getting your internet installed or or whatever, um, or going to a restaurant that was open like after hours when it wasn't supposed to be, like you just had to know like you just like had to know a guy. Like, oh, this guy will get you your internet installed. This guy runs this bar where you can go at six in the morning when everything's supposed to be closed. This guy will help you find a house. You know, like this kind of thing. Uh, is Because of the large informal economy, does that wind up happening in, in, in Abidjan as well? I would say definitely. Um, yeah, it helps to know the guy. It also helps to have money to pay him on the side. Um, you can get a lot done when you have just extra cash to get people to get things done faster. Okay. Um, part... Uh, I, I don't want to keep you both from your frozen yogurt, but uh, but um, if you have any final thoughts, like anything you want to sort of leave our listeners with, most of whom ha- have, have never been anywhere near Cote d'Ivoire, uh, what would you like to sort of leave as, as kind of your your party? Although I, I, I suspect and hope that, that I, you know, either or both of you will come back on this podcast again, because there's, there's a lot of stuff that's going to be happening in this country over the next few months and years. Yeah. Do you have any sort of parting... Uh, parting messages about your experience here that you'd like everyone to hear no you guys should come visit laura's got a big apartment she can host you guys <laughs> no really it's a great place and we'd be happy to to welcome anybody all right so so everyone listening go visit nora and laura in in abidjan it's a hopping party and there's frozen yogurt there's no starbucks but to be honest i have to drink starbucks every day because at l'enfant plaza in washington dc you have no other choice and uh Y'all aren't missing what you think you're missing. It's, it's, it's fine. fine. Um, <laughs> anyway, Nora and Laura, thank you so much for, for coming on the podcast. You can find the podcast on iTunes by uh, searching for Ambassadors at Large. You can subscribe to every episode. It's free. Leave us a five-star review if you think we're a great show. Even if you think we're like a good show, leave us like a four-star review, and it's great. Um, you can also find the podcast on the web uh, at joegenie.com slash podcast. That's J-O-E-G-E-N-I, my name, dot com slash podcast. There's an associated blog and research papers, my music, lots of other cool stuff. Uh, but uh, whether you uh, whether you find the podcast through the website, on my Facebook page, or on iTunes, uh, I am so glad that you listened to it. So to everyone who's listening out there, thank you so much for listening to the podcast, and we will be back next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.